This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to this bonus episode from Protexic. In our last episode, we spoke with child and adolescent psychotherapist Dr. Coleman Nocter about young people and their digital lives. It was a wide-ranging conversation that also touched on our own use of technology, and we have a bit more of that for you in this unedited interview where Coleman describes the tinderization of society. We also discussed the efforts being made on the regulation side with the appointment of an online safety commissioner for Ireland. If you've already listened to the main episode and want to jump into the parts you missed, we'll put some timestamps into the show notes for you. We hope you enjoyed the full interview as much as we did and be sure to come back next week for an all new episode. Welcome, Coleman. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Cheers. It's great to talk to you. Um, I've been aware of your work for such a long time um, and it's just it's something that comes up so often I think there's a lot of anxieties around children and technology and it's great to have an expert voice contributing to this we don't even have kids let alone the qualifications <laughs> that you have here um, but something that's interesting that I've seen from your work is you've written that there is no straight answer to those common questions which is what's the age that kids should have smartphones and how much screen time is too much screen time like it's not a very black and white issue so tell us your thoughts there yeah I mean I, I think when you work as in this area for as long as I do, you know that maturity levels vary. So age is a most unreliable indicator of, you know, 13-year-olds who you might have no issues around their use of technology. They seem to have a lot of common sense. They're sensible. There's 17-year-olds who would have grave concerns around their choices around their digital communication. And so the idea of, I think you assess it on the basis of the child rather than on their age. And I think from the point of view of we have a kind of a, a, an um, urban myth that 13 seems to be the age now. in terms of most of the platforms would have that age, but almost like your confirmation, you know, you book the suit by the phone, you know, there's that sort of a, an idea to it, or in some cases in the communion. Um, uh, and and again, I would think that varies very much from child to child. Um, I think people who are sensible offline are sensible online. And so you're, it's a most reliable indicator is your temperament, the, the maturity level and the wisdom of your child. Um, and that would, it's it's at that point you can choose whether they are ready or not. Um, I have three children myself. My eldest is 13. He's just got his phone. Um, he had no interest in getting it. He's, kind of, he's an Xbox and he's much more interested in that. Um, <clears throat> his sister is 10 and would take her left hand off on, for her <laughs> phone. And she is one I'd be far more cautious about giving it to because... Her enthusiasm comes with a naivety as well. So these are all these kind of variables that you would kind of think about in terms of what age a child should get a phone. The second thing is I don't believe screen time to be a reasonable dashboard either. And I'll explain why I think that is. I think there's time spent and time well spent on technology. And technology for me is a bit like food. You have good foods and not so good foods. And, you know, it's not about living a donut-free life. You know, we all have to have those candy crush moments and everything else, but you don't, if you're having donuts for every meal, then you're going to come into difficulties. And so for me, it's, you know, we don't judge a child's diet by how much time they sit eating at a table. We judge it by the content that they consume. And so from that point of view, the idea of technology is, you know, I can spend an hour on YouTube learning a, a song on a guitar, and that's a good use of my time. It's a tutorial, and I'm coming away with a skill. 
or I can spend an hour on another platform looking at pictures of my ex and where she is in her life now and come away speaking very badly of myself and my own decisions. Over the, so the screen time would say an hour each, but the things that I've done in that hour on the screen are very, very different. And so the move away from the time spent to time well spent is about maybe us teaching ourselves to use our time better. It's the way in which we choose to kind of say, well, I've had a bit more donuts today than I need and I might, you know, have less this evening or I might, and we self-regulate. The issue with children is that they haven't the neurological capacity to self-regulate. So the, all the, the, the responsibility of technological, technological use is in the hand of the user. Um, and it is a fairly unregulated platform. So um, my view is always that, you know, you work with the user rather than technology. Uh, because they're the ones that have the influence over making those choices. But for children, I think they haven't developed that skill and then we give out to them for not being regulated on their use of technology when in actual fact that's something they're unable to do rather than unwilling to do. And I think that puts them in an unfair position. And presumably there's no age that dictates when you suddenly are able to self-regulate. Like, and there's probably some adults who still struggle with that as well. Is there a way as a parent to maybe assess where your child is at in that kind of way? Again, it's maybe their ability to step back from something. And, and our self-regulation will be different. You know, for some people who don't have a sweet tooth, you know, having a packet of penguin bars in the cupboard is not an issue. Whereas for those of us who do, that's much more of a difficulty. So it's it's about your own kind of vulnerability to the stimulus, if that makes any sense. And when I did my, my PhD, I looked at online sharing and why do we do that? And so what I did was I, I set up a, a Facebook profile at the time. I wouldn't be doing that now. but um, And I recruited kind of people and I looked at their sharing patterns and I interviewed the four most prolific sharers and asked them, you know, what was the experience? Why did you do it? And what was the feeling afterwards? And what I found was most people were looking to find themselves rather than announce themselves. You know what I mean? So the idea of how important it was to be on your phone or to have your phone with you or to post your blueberry muffin or whatever it was that you're doing, that's a very individual concept. And so self-regulation will be more difficult for people who have a real leniency or vulnerability to need to know uh, versus those who aren't. And you'll notice people who go, oh, I forgot my phone today, and then they're grand, whereas other people are getting six buses back to the house to pick it up, you know. And it's, a, again, I think our relationship with technology is an emotional one. I think it's an extension of our lives. And so, you know, they're not just a device that allows you to call someone or phone someone. It's about... We put our pictures in there, we put our diaries in there, we put our dream logs in there. And it's like, you know, a, a copybook ceases to be a copybook when it becomes a diary. And so the technology is, it's how much we invest in it will create that intensity of that relationship with it, which will in turn intensify whether self-regulation is more difficult or not. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And and you talked about like, you know, the, the quality of the time spent on it rather than the amount of time and stuff. And, and I think there's a lot of talk about, you know, the negative impacts of technology on kids and just kind of flat out. But like, is there like really strong uh, research around the fact that it, it absolutely is negative or are there positive aspects to it too? And there's a research only recently that said, you know, in terms of gaming is very good for children in terms of cognitive alertness, sharpness, astuteness, um, decision making, that sort of stuff. Um, and, and again, we technology is not good or bad. The usage is, you know, and mm -hmm. so from the point of view of, you know, we can see how technology has been used to you know, rescue from someone from the side of a mountain with a drone or something and it can also get you scammed by some 
prince in some African country needs to send money to. So from the point of view, that's, there are two uses of technology that are very different. Um, but and, and so I don't think you can say good or bad. I just think good or bad usage. But we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a lot of really helpful ways in which technology can enhance young people. And I work with lots of young people with dyslexia. I have issues with young people with dyspraxia who'd have difficulty you know, organising things. And the introduction of assistive technology has been hugely important for them. Um, it's been a game changer for children with autism in terms of their ability, you know, going from picture boards to iPads, things like that. So um, it's not about good or bad. It's about good or bad usage. And again, that comes down to our personal choice. But I think our relationship with technology is still so recent. You know, the idea that um, like the iPhone baby is only 15 this year. So from the point of view of that was a game changer in terms of the handheld technology was different to the PC in the corner of the sitting room. You know, so from the point of view of it's still our relationship with that technology is still in its adolescence, if that makes any sense, because we're still trying to work that out. Um, and I would hope that it gets better as we mature with it. But I still think we're quite romanticized by technology. We're still in wonder about what it can do. Um, and sometimes that leaves us a little bit naive to what it can do. Um, but my hope would be that it goes gets better rather than more and more naive. And anyway, the advent of AI and all that sort of stuff is going to be really interesting. Um, you know, I work in a university, so chat GBT and all those sort of things have become challenges that we have to think around and all of that sort of stuff. But um, um, again, it'll take time for us to settle with it. And we have to give children time as well. I think, um, you know, handing a child a device that's a portal to the outside world when they're eight, I hope at some point we'll see maybe time will show us that that probably wasn't the best thing to do. And uh, and as we become more informed, we make better choices, I hope. And then looking at the technology makers and their part in this as well, like the impression that I get is that they, they would rather not be dealing with under 13s on their platforms um, because it just causes a lot of headaches for them. So that's why they put uh, the advisory out there that the platforms are for 13 and over. And we've already kind of talked about how, you know, that doesn't really set a great guideline because a 13-year-old and up could have, have bad self-regulation and have bad experiences there. But it does seem to be that they're genuinely interested in, or not interested in babysitting kids and they are trying to make an internet that's maybe for 13 and up in the majority of spaces. But it's so hard, it's so easy to bypass. Like it is just a case of like, if you're smart enough as a kid to just put in the wrong year for your birth or date of birth or something like that. Like, is there any point to this other than just technology makers are just trying to give themselves some leeway and saying, we did build the platform for under uh, 13. So if they're having bad experience on it, it's not really our fault. Yeah, I think it's a bit like, you know, we provide the, platform in the village for people to come up and talk what they say is up to them you know I think there's a it goes a little bit more than that um, and again I think technology companies is a very generic term as well there might be some who are a bit more outreachy yeah, and concerted efforts to make difference than ones that are a bit more sinister and that so I think it depends very much on the, the platform some of the the outreach stuff I would view as very tokenistic and have very little weight when you don't increase a, a robustness of age verification really is anything that you say difficult you know um, but for me the, the internet's unregulatable is its secret sauce you know that's the issue that makes it most attractive you take that out and there's lots of people have started up these kind of walled garden social networks for small children they don't take off because they're not an adult free space you know the idea of the attraction of it is it's is unregulatable nature of it so the idea of you kind of lose that if you bring that in and so I think technology companies are very aware of that um, but there is a lot of headaches for the under 13s who 
are accessing things and you know maybe causing issues for them. But I do believe that like. I think technology comes here have a great deal of foresight, and I, I, I take, use the example of, like I talk to my colleagues about metaverse and you know that sort of stuff, and people are saying oh, avatars is like, and I'm saying it's not for us. That's for the, my kids who are using avatars in their Fortnite and everything else for the last five years. They're going to grow up in that, so it's a, they're in training for that which is coming next, and it's not for me in my mid forties to go, I don't want to be a cartoon. You know what I mean? So from the point of view of, uh, I think there's, um, they have made very little mistakes. You know, um, you know, I can remember in a class in 1999 and, you know, a friend was, was explaining texting and I was like, that'll never take off. You know, that'll never, why would you just not call? You know, they knew something that we didn't know. And then the idea of video, that's, what's good, that's good. Who's going to do that? You know? Lo and behold, yeah. uh, I, I stand corrected again. Um, and, and they haven't got a lot wrong in terms of how they've anticipated things. And I, I don't think they do anything naively. So if it was if it was better for them to not allow them on there under 13 and they could do it, I think they would. So while there are headaches involved, I think there's some benefits involved too, you know. To kind of secure their future with these users. That's us told. Mm. Like, we're going to be that person there. Yeah, we're going to be who said, people. oh, that metaverse, that's never going to take off. And all yeah. the kids today will be like, these old wagons. <laughs> don't <laughs> know do, what you're talking do about. Do you know what I mean? Like, it is like, I, I see my kids and everything in their Snapchat and everything is avatars and put, picking my mm. hair colour and my eye colour and my da, 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 da. And they, they communicate through those issues. So the thoughts of me sending my avatar to a conference in Turkey on child psychiatry sounds bizarre, but to them... That might not be. It They'll put be their the VR headset and say, yeah, let's go. Let's do yeah. it, you know. And um, I think parents always ask the question that we talked about at the start, which is like, you know, what age is OK? Because they, they just want the definitive answer and, and they can't really get that because, as you said, it is child dependent. But, you know, do, do they need to start having the conversation about what the online space is like maybe earlier so that they can prepare themselves? Like you said, like some might be a little bit more resilient towards the, the overload. Would conversations around that help them better? Yeah, and I, mean, I think it's it's like a language that you need to teach. You know, you're learning, you know, we did safe cross codes and we were growing up about how to cross a road and, you know, how to negotiate things like that, stranger danger, all that sort of stuff. Um, it's just, it's similar, but it's just in a whole different level, you know, in terms of trying to maintain that level of digital savvy. Uh, and it will, you know, you can teach safe cross code to a kid a hundred times, they still leg it across without looking, you know, so <laughs> from the point of view, these are not foolproof methods. <laughs> Jaywalking. Uh, but from the point of view, the, the issue around, because it's so pervasive, it needs a far more involved in our fabric of our learning than it does now. It can't be just a class at the end mm. or a, a policeman comes in and tells us about cyber safety once a year. That's nowhere near enough, I think, in terms of that. So our digital literacy and our and I do think it has because I said that technology is an emotional issue, I think it has to be thought in that way. The emotional dynamic of what it's like to get likes and how that affects our dopamine levels and how it makes us excited and how disappointing it is when someone doesn't open our Snapchat message and how we're left unread or whatever. Like those sorts of things are hugely significant in negotiating the digital world from an emotional point of view. Like it's it's not just about, we don't teach children to, to negotiate the world by crossing roads. You know, We teach them how to learn with disappointment, how to deal with failure, how to deal with being hoodwinked. You know, if something's too good to be true, it could be that sort of stuff. And I think that's the level we need to pitch our digital and emotional literacy to because I don't believe it to be simply, it's not like driving a car. 
Well, I suppose in some ways it is. But, you know, you can say don't drink, don't speed, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you have to understand that you're in charge of a big machine here that could hurt somebody, could hurt somebody else. You have to take that seriously. There's a responsibility. And I would always say being online and having access is a responsibility. It's not a human right. Do you know what I mean? And you earn the right by showing the responsibility. And that's why I would love to see a kind of a driving test equivalent to children eventually about how you would earn the the maturity to be able to to be on that space. Um, a license to go online. Yeah, pretty much. And I think it, it, it would be an emotional assessment as much as, you know, what would you do if blah, 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 mm. blah. And, 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 you know, we think if we develop children's technological skills, we keep them safe. In actual fact, the research would say the opposite. You know, they're more likely to fumble into places that they shouldn't be because they can negotiate passwords or whatever the case may be. Um, and it's interesting that the children of tech-informed parents are much more cautious about their ch- children's use of technology than parents who aren't informed. Mm. Um, so the idea that, you know, knowledge is power is in terms of when it comes to now helping your children to, to develop that literacy. Do you know what I mean? So mm. those ch- parents aren't teaching them how to navigate the infrastructure. They're teaching them how to pace their introduction to it. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's difficult because I feel like there's adults that could do with the on, the license to go online, that emotional. Like I feel like as adults, we're teaching ourselves the effects that social media has on us as mm. grown up people, um, so to nav- navigate that as a as a learning for children, and, and I think the idea of kids and their screens is hugely unhelpful because it's timeless. Like the, some of the most immature use of technology I've ever seen have come from forty year olds. Yeah. Mean, so from the point of view of, I was in the cinema last night and people were taking pictures during the film with flash on. Like, <laughs> what the actual fuck? <laughs> no, do you know what I mean? Like the idea of. It's too handy to say this is all kids, you know. The, yeah. the issue and and too much screen time and is, too, yeah. is a really common. And that's like, the idea that I believe that we have, as a society, we've moved hugely into emotional expression. Tell us how you feel, you know, have mm-hmm. feelings, and you know, boys cry, all that sort of stuff. That's a really good message, but it has to be accompanied by emotional intelligence, which is about being aware of that. If you have emotional expression without emotional intelligence. You kind of have Twitter in some respects where people are shouting, I have feelings, I have feelings, but they're not really processing those feelings. And so the idea around it's not just about being able to express emotion, it's about understanding it, you know. And, you know, I know we're making big strides in terms of well-being and all that sort of stuff, but I do think, and I think perhaps COVID hasn't helped in terms of the social and emotional development of people over the last number of years. But um, they're, they're, again, that emotional component of tech needs to be included. You know, I think it's... It's a social dynamic, and when it, anything that involves human interaction will involve emotion. It'll involve manipulation. It'll involve reaction, and we have to kind of teach ourselves how to manage that reaction. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like there's a little bit of a need for turning the mirror back onto yourself. Like you're so concerned about your kids' healthy use of technology, and there's no self-examination of maybe, well, how healthy is your relationship with technology, and what example are you setting? Because it just makes me think of, um, and this is really a common story. My dad would have quit smoking after he had kids. Like that was the spur to make him kind of reflect on his own health and behaviours um, and do better, essentially. Uh, not, not to be like anti-smoking or anything mm. like that, but like you're hurting yourself and other people. Um, and I just think maybe that's something like we could reach a turning point if that was the kind of cognitive um, 
leap that people were making after they have kids. It's like, oh, actually, I, I'm sweating so much about my kids' use. Maybe I should look at my own and then that could be a good guide. And that's a, that's a hugely important point. I, I always think it's an emotional mirror that creates change rather than an informational one, right? So you're far more likely to change your lifestyle habits and go on a diet, not because you picked up a leaflet in the GP surgery, but because you saw a picture of yourself and went, I don't want to look like that anymore. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? So it's an emotion that creates change. And if we're talking about awareness, you know, awareness is with the hope of changing behavior. I think you have to have an emotional awareness of holding that mirror up. Like back to school time, you know, I just spoke to someone on the way here and they were saying, you know, uh, I can't stand looking at another Instagram lunchbox, you know, and the pressure of having hummus and fruit and all these sorts of things in. And that's adults under that pressure to yeah. to provide the lunchbox that's Instagrammable because everyone else is. That's an emotional reaction to a technological phenomenon. Do you know what I mean? And so from the point of view of parental competitiveness, the hyper comparative culture that we live in, where we can see everyone's, you know, that's different now. So if you had a new mantelpiece, Elaine, I would have had to go to your house and see it back in 1995. (laughs) Now you send your picture of your mantelpiece to my sitting room and now I have to look at my own mantelpiece. Little do you know that outside the frame of the picture is absolute (laughs) chaos. You just see the perfect mantelpiece. But there's no age limit to that pressure. Absolutely not. And so we're all, none of us are immune to comparison, social comparison. And we oftentimes talk about social comparison in a way that we look at celebrities and we think we need to be up there. There's also a dynamic of looking at people who are worse off than us and almost getting gratification by the fact that we're not that bad. You know, so characters like um, Alan Partridge or David Brent and these sorts of characters, we get gratified by going, well, at least I'm not that bad. You know, they've elements of ourselves. And social comparison works the opposite way as well. So it can be quite a a narcissistic almost issue as well. And we don't talk as much about that side of things. But, um, you know, if someone's having a bad day that's worse than yours, it makes you feel better too. Do you know what I mean? So, again, it's impact on empathy, altruism, all of that sort of stuff. You know, a lot of our stuff is, is around performance, you know, and I think that's a big change in how we negotiate the world because uh, I described this thing as, the Tinderization of society, right? So for the idea of, you look at a Tinder profile, it's your profile that defines whether you get swiped left or right. So you have to look your best, you have that witty one-lining comment, you have to sound interesting. So that's all the performance, that's the outward-facing ego. There's no value to everything behind that because what's swiped is the profile. So now we all have to focus on the outward-facing ego with and and pay less attention to what is behind it because technology has determined that that's what's important. Does that make sense? And so that creates value systems. So now we have in school, you've the smartest kid, the fastest kid, they get the prizes. Everyone else, you know, not so much. And we're creating this value system of the lunchbox is more important. If it looks good, then if it helps your sanity to prepare it. Do you know what I mean? So all of these narratives within our lives are being dictated to by technology and by its influence on our lives. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so I, I always use the example of, you know, I'm going to pay for something and tapping and the girl going, sorry, the tap is broken. And me going, you mean I have to press four <laughs> buttons and this sort of disgust <laughs> that, like I pressed four my buttons. my own hands. <laughs> I pressed four buttons six months ago, no problem. So the easier something becomes, the harder the easy thing appears. Does that make sense? Mm. So the idea that we are struggling with things now that we didn't struggle with before, the speed and convenience of technology has almost allowed us... And, and again, that's an emotional pain. Yeah. Does that make sense? It's why I have so much sympathy for parents. Like, because 
they have all of those pressures that we all have of, of like their personal self and like trying to uh, reach the aspirations that have been set out on like your Instagrams and stuff like that. And on top of that, trying to be like the best parent ever because every parent wants to be everything to their kids and give their kids everything. And there's also the aspect of modern parents. You know, we have a lot more than we had a couple of decades ago and they are able to give their kids a lot more than they would have had growing up and they really want to do that. And it's just like the pressure must be insane. Mm. I can't imagine what it's like, but I have, you know, seen examples of it. But it was really good to see that community in Greystones where the parents actually banded together as a collective and said, none of the kids are getting phones until secondary school. We've all agreed together Mm. that that's what's going to happen. And I'm sure that helped to take some of that pressure off because they kind of took away the keeping up with the Joneses sort of aspect of it. Yeah, I I think 90% of parents give a, a device to their child with trepidation. And they say, this is against my better judgment, but you can have it. And it's the pester power that creates that need to to give it. And and, and what unfortunately, when it, the way it works now is that the lowest common denominator or the weakest link in the chain or the first parent to break sets the tone for everyone else. So if you get Call of Duty over 18's game at, in fifth class, then you put on the pressure on all the other parents to, to follow suit. And that's what happens is they say, well, Elaine has it. And oh, well, if Elaine has it, you can have it. You know, that sort of stuff. And so the idea that we are not determined by evidence, informed decision-making, we're informed by pressure. And the difference in that is that man, one of the biggest challenges of being a parent is giving your child what they need, not what they want. And your child wants this phone, but they need not to have it. And, and the pressure of, I will be a social outcast if I don't have this, and no one will like me, and I won't be able to spat, chat to my friends. You don't want to be the one responsible for your child becoming a social outcast. So you do give it against your better judgment, or whatever the case may be. So when you have something like the Greystones Initiative, it takes that pressure off. It allows people to go, well, if no one in the class is getting, well, then I'm not going to be under that pressure. And that is phenomenally impressive but it's in pockets you know the, it'll happen in these certain areas but it would be very very difficult to do to roll that out across the board I think there's the pressures there already you know and you'll have cousins who don't live in Greystones who have phones and the, you know all of that sort of stuff but the issue around that idea of giving people what they want and what they need I think there's another interesting dynamic and I'm only thinking about this driving in the difference between parents and children is different now right so I listen to chart music my children listen to chart music, so I'd be humming Kylie, Badam Badam, or whatever it is, and, <laughs> and they'd be listening to it as well. That wasn't the case when I was growing up. My father listened to Perry Como and somebody else who I didn't know, or Richard Claderman or something, and I was listening to cool music. Whereas adults now are wanting to be younger for longer, and children want to be older. Quicker. Quicker. So the idea of that gap is getting less and less and less. And so when you want to be the cool parent the device and giving them what they want is, un, is a phenomenally different thing. And I think sometimes being a parent is about being unpopular. You know, it's about taking the hard decisions. Um, and I think that's become more difficult now than it was 20 years ago. The boundary the boundary wall is kind of different and a bit yeah, it's more, much more lower permeable. and transparent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's, it's easier to scale, I think. Do you know what I mean? It's easier to hop over. And mean? I mean, you're going through it in your own household, as you said. Like, you've got one child who has the phone now and a younger child who really wants that phone 
And that, like, I can, are you prepared to navigate this? This is going to be hard for you because <laughs> you have to justify why one has it and why one can't have it yet and may not even get it at the same age, possibly. Possibly, possibly. Yeah, it, it's difficult because it is about the want and need issue. Um, and, and again, I think earning the responsibility, earning the right by showing the responsibilities is part and parcel of that. So my tactic is, you know, start tight with all you know, I have full access to my son's phone at any time. Um, and if he steps out of line in any way, he will lose that access to that device. Do you know what I mean? So what I'm trying to teach him is, you know, you play ball, you get more. Um, you're more responsible, more freedom. You know, that's the... Me- so I use the example of, you know, if your child wants to stay out till 10 o'clock at night over the summer holidays and you want them in at eight, what you say is you come in at eight, three days in a row, on time, no arguments, no rows, I'll push it to quarter past eight. You come in at quarter past eight, no arguments, no rows, I'll push it to... And that's the process of starting low and, and moving as you go. But surveillance of technology is so difficult. And again, Snapchat being the cha- challenging one from that point of view because I can hear it going every five minutes. Do you know what I mean? And uh, like he started first year and the, the rule was no class groups and like before three o'clock the staff group had been or the kids group had been established so from the point of view of your your to stem the tide of that influence is pointless so i'm going to invest in my boy and try and get him to become as sensible with technology as possible i don't know whether um, investing in the technology and trying to, uh, and this might be something you might want to get into later, but the idea of, I think we rely very heavily on parent control apps, you know, and I always had this saying, you know, there's no app for your lap, you know, so teaching your child how to negotiate the world is not by, you know, it's not by not allowing them to go into places, it's about saying, you know, here's the thing, I think we try in the, in, in, in the world at the moment to make a life as certain as possible. Right, so anxiety is a fear of the unknown. So we create as many certainties as possible. I think that's a mistake. I think we have to teach people to cope with uncertainty when it inevitably happens. You know, so the idea around how do you react to something that's going so pornography, cyberbullying. If these things come his way, I'm not trying to say that spare him it. Uh, but if it did happen, what does he do? And you know, one of the things I think I've said to him so many times is, if you come to me with a problem, it doesn't mean I take your phone off you. You know, because I think the biggest issue is we say, I'm going to give you this against my better judgment. And then as soon as something goes wrong, they're expecting that I told you so, that's the phone gone, you know. And there's nothing worse than to be cut off from that world. So from the point of view of I've tried to say to him many times, come to me, we'll deal with it. You know, it's not that it's uh, automatically going to mean... uh, taking the technology away from you because I think that unfortunately that silences a lot of children and I've worked with lots of children who've hid stories about being bullied and picked on for months on the basis that the fear was as soon as I tell my parents the phone is gone does that make sense? Yeah I was going to say that that's most likely going to just get them to not tell anybody what's happening or all the bad stuff and Yeah and I, I think we, we do it with the best of intentions as parents you know yeah. and I see parents going if you're ever bullied, I'll be in there and I'll go into that schoolyard and I'll tell... You know, that's not the parent I just won't tell you then. Yeah, (laughs) that's the first thing that Um, would come to mind. Yeah, so the idea of, even though parents are doing that with the best of intentions, there might be ways in which we can empower them to to enable them to speak more about Mm -hmm. the honesty of it. Um, Because it's not a world that they're going to negotiate without problems. Do you know what I mean? It's, let's be realistic. Mm -hmm. Um... They will come across stuff. And even if they don't go looking for it, it'll find them, you know. Um, and that's the approach. I, I keep you posted. But uh, <laughs> so far, two weeks in, it's going okay. <laughs> and um, 
In just in terms of the kind of, I suppose, trying to navigate that regulation side, Ireland recently appointed its first online uh, safety commissioner. Do you think that's a step in the right direction? Or how far do you think that's I think go? it's a small step in yeah. the right direction. I think it's a far too big a landscape for one person, which would be one thing I'd say. Um, with any of these things, it has to have teeth. And I don't know whether it will. Uh, I, I mean, we have to be honest, we are in a vulnerable position when it comes to tech companies in terms of that we host many of them, you know, so from the point of view of us being hard-lined about what we expect and what we want is already compromised before you do that. Um, I don't see it as just tokenistic, but I see it as a tiny step in the right direction. Um, but the idea around reporting and, you know, having some accountability for responding to reports that happen, um, I'm not entirely sure that that's exactly the way that I would like it to be. Um, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, the Australian model has a bit more robustness to how these companies are, are accountable for things that come their way. Um, I think there's kind of a, a consensus process. We'll talk about it. We'll gather up as many complaints as we can. Like anything in, the, in political circles, it takes too long, you know, and by the time some inquiry is resolved, that issue is passed. Um, and I don't think in terms of technology, I think we are all first aid responders. You know, the, each of these crises happen so quickly. It's not something we can sit on, you know, and and the idea of, and this is going to sound a bit doomy, but, you know, this is a social experiment. You know, we are still part of it. It hasn't been around long enough for us to have any conclusive evidence to suggest it's good or bad. Um, and when you don't know the outcome of something, by definition, it's an experiment, you know, but the idea around, um, you know, sometimes... Uh, good enough is, is is better than perfect, you know, and sometimes we just need to be able to respond and manage rather than wait and wait and wait and see, you know, um, and I think there are things we could be doing a little bit better. Um, and while some of that is the awareness stuff and the literacy and bring it into schools and informing parents about stuff like that, um, uh, I think there is, there's more that we can be doing from the point of view of the tech companies and getting them to to own a little bit of responsibility, especially when it comes to children, you know. But I, 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 I'm sorry, I'm rambling a little bit, but there's an idea that, you know, there's two sides to this debate. There's the people who are very rights-focused and people who are very responsibility-focused. So we are where we are. We just educate, we make aware. We that That's one side of it. Other is ban phones until they're 16, right? Neither of those are correct. Uh, the idea is, is, is rights and responsibilities meet in the middle and there's some degree of a middle ground approach to both of those things. Um, but the, as long as we have that debate, then, like, I can c give you 100 papers that says text is really bad, and uh, you can have a tech expert who'll say, well, prove it. You know, you can't, the, the research ethics for, okay, let's take a group of children, let's expose them to unreal, you know, unfeathered access to the internet, pornography, cyberbullying, and see if it has any impact. You're not going to get ethical approval for that research study, so you'll never know. And cause and effect in something like this, you know, is it because this kid was allowed a device till four in the morning that they have behavioural problems. Well, the fact that their parents allowed them to stay up till four in the morning might mean that their other parenting strategies might be equally loose, which might equally cause why this child is having these difficulties. So almost impossible to say yes or no, but we can, to, with some degree of accuracy, say this bit's helpful, this not so much, but I don't know whether we're listening to that enough or whether we're following it enough. Um, I think the wait and see is not the best approach. Yeah, but baby steps to try and get good enough would, would be better because, I mean, perfect with something that has so many variables to it just won't exist. It's not possible. Yeah. You know, yeah. you'll, we'll be still, you know, chipping away um, mm -hmm. 
while the, you know, it's yeah. like tending to one corner of your garden while the rest of it becomes a jungle behind you. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Because um, yeah. it's constantly changing as well. Yeah, technology, you know, is, is it's the water fish. Like, it's everywhere. You know, people say, when do you introduce your child to technology? Like, when you have a one of those m- mats in your child's crash or cot that yeah. goes off when they, you know, stop moving, that's technology. Mm. The you know your your device your remote control for your tv and your smart box is technology you know so you know they can get youtube on that they can get all this sort of mm-hmm. stuff. so the idea that there's this big day and this big reveal of when we give you the phone children are way more savvy at getting their hands yeah. on and even that. if uh, say children's groups or even regulators took a hard line and set a deadline on that there is a precedent that we know that that doesn't actually impact anything people under 18 in Ireland drink Mm. people under 16 in France drink so like there's no definitive which age works in which uh, country or whatever it's just that you can set these guidelines and possibly you know um, make it the responsibility of some companies to, to you know properly try and create barriers there Kids are still going to find mm. a way in. If there's something that they want to do, they will find a way in. If it's if it's if it's my idea, it's right. Do we find an age like thirteen, fifteen, sixteen, and we'd establish that, or do we prepare as many thirteen-year-olds as possible to be able for that world, and fourteen-year-olds to be able for it, and sixteen-year-olds? And I think that's the. I think the investment is in the humans, not the technology. Um, but um, investment in humans costs a little bit, and it's you know hard to measure and you know these are things like when you put the investment in this you're not going to be able to measure how many children didn't fall into troubles with tech because they got this intervention do you know what I mean and unfortunately that doesn't get votes either you know so the the, the more immediate kind of I put this in this yeah. happened the scene to be to, doing something yeah. is more effective often from the visual point of view than the actual effective actions that they should be taking yeah and that's where maybe something like an online commissioner in situ is much more impressive from that point of view than perhaps putting the investment in a longer term strategy. You know? yeah. Well, thanks so much for all your insights today, Coleman. It's been a really, really great discussion and hopefully been very, very helpful to some parents or some future parents that have been listening. So thank you so much. Not at all. Pleasure. For Tech's Sake is a co-production from Silicon Republic and the Headstuff Podcast Network, hosted by Elaine Burke and Jenny Darmody. Thank you to Hilary Barry for production, Matt Matten and Dali for our graphics, Claudia Grande for her social media support and all at the Headstuff team. You can follow us at For Tech's Sake Pod on your platform of choice and let us know what you think via fortechsakepod at gmail.com. As a Headstuff Plus community member, you get access to bonus content from across the network. So do check out some of our sister shows and give them your support. And tune in next week for an all new episode. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.